Good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be in Hebrews 2 this morning. I want to pick it up in verse 9 this morning. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 9. We find this. Uh, right of Hebrews tells us, But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to speak into our lives, and that you've left us not in darkness, not in a void of understanding, Lord, but that you have revealed to us who you are and what you desire. And Father, I pray even as we open your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, that you would direct us, that you would challenge us. I, I pray that you would convict us of sin, that you would cause us to new things this week. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd move me out of the way, that my words would be yours, and that you would do in this time in our lives whatever it is that you see fit, Lord. In your precious holy name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the Super Bowl. I know for myself, the week after the Super Bowl, I'm typically a little bit more interested in the analysis of the commercials than I am necessarily the analysis of the game. I usually have like a 24-hour swoon of like void of football depression, uh, and then I kind of get out of that, and then I kind of look at the commercial and the feedback, and it seemed to me this year that ad makers for the Super Bowl ads seemed to be way more interested in making us cry uncontrollably uh, than they were about making us laugh hysterically. And so I don't know what commercial kind of got you. I don't know if it was the Budweiser kind of lost puppy commercial. Uh, then there was like a whole string, a whole kind of thread of dad commercials, right? So uh, there was like the Dove, like real men care thing. Then there was Toyota had like a dad uh, tracing his life with his daughter. And then I think Nissan had that dad commercial that was kind of a uh, uh, a guy had a passion for racing, a passion for his son. How do those fit together? Eventually he chooses his son. But there was another commercial that kind of got me more. Uh, there was another commercial that kind of played to the same dad theme. It was a little bit more subtle. You may have missed it. You may not have grouped it into the whole dad theme commercials, but this was by far my favorite commercial. And here you go. good things about that commercial. I, anytime I hear Liam's voice, I'm always like, whatever. Whatever you want, it's on, all right? Uh, I've often thought if I could just have him in my quiet time and have him reading the Bible to me, it would be even better, right? Just his voice is so good. 
Of course, that commercial is playing back to his character in all the many Taken movies in which he has a particular set of skills in which he informs any guy who's ransomed his daughter on the phone, right? You may remember that first Taken movie with that conversation on the phone that kind of marked him and who he was going to be as an actor. Uh, I love that commercial for a series of reasons. One, I love this idea, not, not, not necessarily of revenge, I don't know what's going on there, but uh, I love the idea of, even of his, his character in taking this idea that Liam Neeson with a certain set of skills can make a rescue attempt, that no one's going to mess with him. I even love that commercial really when you get this juxtaposition or this kind of contrast right beside one another of this tough guy Liam Neeson character, and then you see him at a pastry shop with the bell tolling and calling his name wrongly, right? Uh, you kind of have this juxtaposition, this contrast of these two images, What's going to be fascinating to me is you're going to see Liam Neeson willing to leave the confines of a pastry shop to bring about a rescue. What we're going to see in Hebrews 2, and I don't want to make a comparison between Liam Neeson and Jesus, but I'm about to, all right? You're going to see Jesus leaving the confines of heaven to make a rescue that even Liam Neeson would have been impressed by. That's what we're going to see in Hebrews 2. In fact, really, I think a lot of us, as we jump into these Taken movies, as we jump into a passage like this, I think every single one of us loves rescue stories. Think about even the movies that are out right now. Some of you guys may have been into the whole movie Into the Woods, which is really a remake of the Cinderella, the Little Red Riding Hood, and the Rapunzel stories. Uh, Some of you guys, like myself, may love a good action movie, and my favorite scenes are, of course, the dramatic and elaborate rescue scenes, right? Or some of you guys might even be willing to dip sometimes into sci-fi for an interstellar or a Guardians of the Galaxy, but they're all just a kind of rescue story, right? We can't get enough of rescue stories. The more dramatic the rescue, the better off we're into it, the more we're into it. It doesn't matter even if you don't like sci-fi, if there's a good rescue story, you're like, well, maybe I will pay attention for a change, right? We love rescue stories. Well, Hebrews 2 is going to show us the rescue story that Jesus has made possible. And frankly, it is the rescue story of all rescue stories. It is the rescue story of humankind, and really every other movie, every other story is but pointing in an arrow to this most elaborate rescue story. That's what we're going to see. But what's really going to fascinate me as we jump into Hebrews 2 is that it is a rescue story that is frankly in some ways unlike most rescue stories. Where most rescue stories begin, this one begins very, very differently. I want you guys to notice in Hebrews 2, I want you guys to notice as we jump into the story, what makes Jesus' rescue the most significant? Why does it make it superior? Why is it better than any other rescue we could imagine? And the first is this, that there's a superiority in the humility of Jesus Christ. The first thing we're going to see from Hebrews 2 is that Jesus is going to begin from a place of humility in this rescue attempt, which makes his rescue not just better, but frankly different than most rescue stories. And really, if you were here with us last week, really what the writer of Hebrews does in chapter 2 is really significantly different than what he did in chapter 1. As the writer of Hebrews argued last week, we looked at this, that Jesus was better than the angels. He argued for that on the basis of the fact that Jesus was of a deity and he was of an authority that was better than the angels. But what he's going to do here in chapter 2 is he's going to move from authority and deity and he's now going to establish Jesus' humility. Where he in chapter 1 said that Jesus was better than the angels, that he was over the angels. Notice what he says in verse 9 in chapter 2 of Hebrews 2. Notice how the argument has shifted. He says that we do see him, this Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. All right? In chapter 1, he spent so much of that chapter talking about the fact that Jesus was above the angels and then now he's flipped the script and he's saying that Jesus is now lower than the angels. What's going on? Chapter 1 is going to be all about the authority and the deity of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 is going to be all about the humility of Jesus Christ. And really, if you want to look at a rescue story, when you get authority only in a rescue story, you get something far different than when you get authority and you get humility. I've told this story a few times before, but it's one of my favorites that when I was a kid, I really wanted a dog. And my parents were going back and forth and they wouldn't let me have the dog. And then finally I caved them and, and overwhelmed them in my brute 
consistency of the argument and to find like, okay, we'll get a dog. And so we went to a pound where we rescued a dog out of a bad situation. We bring the dog home and things are not going according to plan. It's not actually even playing with us. The moment you get close to the dog, it begins to snarl at us. Uh, And then we begin to put the dog outside and then the dog, like a monkey, okay, climbs a tree, jumps the fence and runs away. First time it happens, we load up in the car and we go hunting and we find the dog and we bring it back, but things are not going well. And so one day I go to school and I come back from school. My mom picks me up and she has a look on her face. I can tell that something is wrong. And she says the dog again climbed the tree, jumped the fence, and, and I, we couldn't find it. So we're going to wait till dad gets home from work and then we'll go look for the dog. I say, all right. And so for, until we, my dad got home, my mom and I are making posters for our dog so that we could put him in the neighborhood with the pictures to say, if you find our dog, let us know, call us, and then we'll come get the dog. And so uh, my dad gets home, and we go posting the, uh, the posters all through the neighborhood. We look around, cannot find the dog at all. We end up sitting at dinner, crying our eyes out, waiting by the phone, and there's no phone calls, no dog calls. No one finds our dog. It would be coming in my freshman year at Texas A&M University that my parents would tell me that the dog actually didn't run away. <laughs> They returned the dog to the pound, okay? Which explains a lot of the childhood issues I have and scars. <laughs> that I, I, clearly, I'm not over that yet. Uh, but even more, to me, it was a rescue story that was only about authority and not about humility, right? My parents had all the authority in the world to make whatever call they wanted to make, but they had no humility. They didn't care about the dog, all right? When you get a rescue story that's only about authority, what you get is always in the best interest of the one who's doing the rescue, but when you get an authority, or when you get a rescue story that's about authority and humility, you get one who has the authority, who's able to rescue, but has the humility, who's willing to do it, even if they're inconvenienced, even if it comes at their cost. Which is why Jesus's rescue here in Hebrews two is so significantly superior. Not only does he have authority, but he has humility, which is why he's able and will make a rescue that no one else can make. Notice what the text says. Why is he lower than the angels? It says in verse 9 that he was made for a little while lower than the angels. What does it mean that he was made for a little while? Uh, Verse 14 will flesh that out for us in which the writer of Hebrews says in verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that he took on flesh and blood that Jesus will leave the cushy confines of heaven, better than a pastry shop, and he will take on human nature. He will take on flesh and blood. And in that, in his incarnation, he will stoop lower for a moment than the angels. (laughs) That his incarnation shows his willingness to come in humility to make a rescue attempt. But it's not just in the incarnation, but it's going to also be in the crucifixion. Notice again, verse 9. Why was he lower than the angels? Because of the suffering of death. He was crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The humility of Jesus' approach in this rescue attempt for all mankind is marked by his incarnation, that he would take on human flesh. And it's marked by the crucifixion, that he would willingly die as a substitute for all humankind. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the greatest news that our Bible could offer to you and I. That though we are hostile to God, though that at times we are enemies, though that we rebel against God, God would send his only son, Jesus Christ, who would take on human flesh, come and live perfectly amongst us and die a death that he should not have had to die. But he'll die a death for us so that we wouldn't have to experience death. He'll taste it. He'll swallow it for us. The rescue attempt that Jesus makes is unlike any other because it begins with humility. And when you have a rescue attempt that begins with humility, it looks very, very different. In fact, I want to ask you guys this morning, as you're just thinking about your life, 
What is it circumstantially right now that you feel like you need rescue from? What are the circumstances? What is the trial you're looking at and you're dealing with right now? Where is it that you feel like life is squeezing down on you and that you feel like you need rescue? One of the things I want to try to encourage you guys with this morning is that whatever those situations are, they're nothing like the rescue attempt that's being explained here. And if Jesus can make possible the rescue in Hebrews 2, then he can deal with whatever smaller circumstances that you are feeling. And I'll show you in a minute as we wrap up this morning the kind of obstacles he overcomes in this rescue attempt, but they are so much bigger than whatever obstacles you're feeling right now. The second thing I want to ask is, maybe you're looking around in your life and you see others that need rescue, and maybe you feel like you are the rescuer for them. My encouragement to you guys is, as you look at that rescue, as you look at trying to encounter and offer aid and help, don't do it as one condescending from the outside. Do it as one with humility who comes in from the inside. See, there's a remarked difference with whether you make a rescue attempt yourself as one who has authority, who condescends from the outside in, or one who has the humility to come from the inside to make the rescue. Uh, I may have shared this story a year ago, but it's one of my favorites as well. A story was told of a zoo in Spain that was trying to uh, have a uh, drill in which they're going to have a gorilla escaping, and they wanted to kind of have a drill, escape drill in the zoo. And so they ended up having this drill, and uh, someone thought it'd be much more helpful if he could really make it more realistic, and so he puts on a gorilla suit, okay? And so he's running through the zoo. People are panicking and yelling, and apparently the memo about the drill didn't get out to everyone, not every worker. And so one worker sees this runaway gorilla, goes back into his office, loads up a tranquilizer gun for a 400-pound gorilla, and unfortunately, he was a good aim, and he takes down the dude in the gorilla suit, all right? The dude doesn't remember what happens. He wakes up at a hospital later because he got hit as a 150-pound man with a 400-pound gorilla tranquilizer dart, all right? He's out cold, all right? But when you have a rescue attempt marked by humility, all right, you're willing to take on that nature and walk it out as the actual person, all right? And so what you're going to see what Jesus is going to do in a similar fashion is he's going to take on and he's going to not just come in humility, but his humility will lead to a willingness to identify with the rescuer, all right? Uh, you're going to see a humility that will cause him to be willing to make a, uh, to actually identify with those that he's trying to rescue. Notice how the text unfolds this for us in verse 11. Notice how it continues on. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Remember last week we said that Jesus was the son of God. Therefore, he shared the same nature with God. Therefore, he's deity. He has authority. And in Hebrews 2, the text is saying he actually shares the same nature also with man. He shares the same nature with man. He shares our nature, which is why he calls us brethren. Notice verse 12. I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. Notice verse 14 again. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that he shares our nature. Lastly, verse 17. Uh, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he shares our nature with us. Therefore, he can call us brethren. He's going to share the same nature with God, therefore be deity in chapter one, uh, chapter one, and he will take the nature of humanity and therefore be called brethren to us in chapter two. There's authority and there's humility. And his humility is marked by his willingness to identify with humanity. He takes on our flesh. He takes on our nature. But it's not just our nature. It's also going to be our experiences. He's going to experience everything that we experience. Verse 9, he talks about Jesus tasting death. Verse 10, we find, uh, and bringing many sons of glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. 
Whatever circumstance you feel like you're walking in, whatever suffering or trial you feel like is squeezing in on you, one of the encouragements is that Jesus has walked in our shoes. He can identify with it. He's not unfamiliar with sufferings. He's a man of sorrows. He's a man acquainted with trial and with difficulty. He knows what it's like to be walking in our shoes because he has walked in our shoes. And I think one of the most uh, encouraging things too comes at the very end of our passage in verse 18 where we find not just that he experiences death and suffering, but that he also experienced temptation. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted into that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That he experienced temptation just like you and I experienced temptation. The fact that he did not sin does not mean that he doesn't understand the temptation. It actually means that he understands the temptation even more because he held up underneath it longer than you and I ever have. It doesn't mean that he doesn't get what you and I are walking through. He actually gets it because he lasted longer in that temptation than you and I ever did and ever have. He gets it. He's a sympathetic high priest, the writer of Hebrews will say in Hebrews 4. He's a priest, a high priest, unlike any other priest before, because he can rescue us, and he comes in with humility, and he understands us. In 2007, there's a documentary called Man Among Wolves from the National Geographic Channel. Very, very weird storyline, but it detailed the story of a man named Sean Ellis, who apparently rescued three wolf puppies on the street and then decided to do what most people do when they rescue little wolf animals. He decides to go live amongst the wolves, all right? So the whole documentary is like this guy's life amongst the wolves. And at one point in the documentary, he literally, and here's the picture, it's creepy, okay? And it's insane, all right? This will ruin your lunch, okay? But he literally decides to live amongst them to such an extent that he takes his food, he puts it in a plastic bag, he puts it in the carcass of the dead animal, and he eats out of that dead animal just like all the other wolves are. Freaky, all right? Freaky, all right? Why did he do it? Why was he, was he, what was he wanting to do? Well, he's wanting to provide research and understanding to scientists and researchers so that they could save wolf survival, all right? I think he went a little too far, all right? Let me give you another modern-day example, all right, of this uh, principle. Uh, this is Will Ferrell, all right? <laughs> This might be a little bit more fitting for you. This won't ruin your lunch, or it may ruin your lunch still, okay? But a Sunday night, there's a lip sync battle between him and Kevin Hart, and his first song that he performs is a lip sync of <laughs> Beyonce, all right? Which, again, there's so many things wrong with that, all right? Uh, but it wasn't just like knowing the words of the song. He, he, as you can see here, tries to choreograph the dance kind of, and actually to help you understand that he actually is trying to channel his inner Beyonce. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen, all right? But here's the thing. That when you and I have the humility to bend low, literally, right, and actually understand from the inside, it takes you and I being willing to actually be a learner and a listener to know the details of what someone else's experience is, all right? How much time did it take Will Ferrell to figure out how to do that? Maybe not that long, right? But he nails it, right? He nails it, okay? So for you and I, as we look at stepping in to identify with someone, there's an aspect of this necessary of humility in which we slow down, not as a condescending authority from the outside, but as a humble servant who comes in from the inside to understand the experience of those that we're trying to come to the aid of. When you and I do that, not only do we share the nature of someone, but we begin to share in their experiences and we step in from the inside. Really, I I think for you and I, as we look at what Jesus Christ does here in the superiority of his rescue, we get a couple pictures here. One is of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us, the greatest rescue story that there ever could be. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, today can be that day for you to enter into a relationship with this one who loves us enough 
not just as an authority from the outside, but as a humble servant from the inside who comes in and he shares in our experience to extend a branch so that we can actually step across a bridge and know him and find salvation in him. The second thing that I think it does for us as we look for rescue in our life is we realize that he provides rescue. That the starting spot in anything that we're looking for rescue from is always a step of humility. It's always a willingness to call out upon him who can rescue and to recognize that he can rescue in a way that no one else can rescue. So in the midst of whatever it is you're walking through this morning, one of the challenges I want to give you is simply this. Recognize who can make the rescue. Recognize who is able and sovereign, who controls circumstances. And even when those circumstances don't unfold in the way that you're hoping or looking, recognize there's one who does still understand what you're walking through. That he's not just some authority who stands from the outside and doesn't seem to be compassionate, but he's an authority who has the power to come in from the outside, but he comes in humility from the inside and who shares and understands what we're dealing with. And the second encouragement I want to give you guys is that you look at his example, I think he provides us a model. That as we're looking to provide a rescue for someone else, if the Lord has opened your eyes where you've seen either in our community, in, our, in the nations, in our world, in our campus, if you look at places where you see the need for rescue, I think the person of Jesus Christ provides us a great model for that that starts with humility and a willingness to know someone's story and to know and to listen and be a learner of who they are and what's going on. Two quick closing applications for you. First is this. As you look in your community and as you see social injustice, social change, community change doesn't occur by a simple work project where you come in from the outside, you drop drop off some goods, and then you bail, and you're out again for the rest of the year, right? Social community change occurs as we step in and as we live amongst people, understand their story, and bring about as an agent of change in their lives. It's not about coming in from the outside, dropping off some goods, and bailing. That's not how community outreach works. That's not how life change happens. Second thing is this. Evangelism doesn't work that way either. That as we talked about last week about stepping out of the Christian bubble, (laughs) we asked you guys last week, do you even have friends who don't know Jesus Christ? Or is your life so insulated by the bubble that you've surrounded yourself by people who believe the same thing that you believe, that we're called and we're dispatched to step out of the bubble and to be salt and light in the world? And as we do that, the way that we share our faith is not about just dropping gospel tracks and gospel bullets on campus and shooting people up left or right. It's about slowing down and being so fascinated by other people that we're less interested in being fascinating to them. That as you step into the campus, as you step into your community, the challenge I want to give you is that you would slow down and that you would begin to be fascinated by other people's stories. Do we have a message of hope? Do we have a message of grace? Yes, we do. But the opportunity to share that, the opportunity to be heard comes as we pursue people well and we love them and we're fascinated and we find out what their story is. It's fascinating to me as we look at the person of Jesus Christ. Did he initiate with strangers? Yes, How did he initiate? With questions, right? He asked them questions. He pulled them out. He got to know their story so that he knew exactly how a message of grace and hope and truth actually would impact them. What were the barriers that they had to the gospel? What were the bridges that they had to cross to get to the gospel? What were the issues? What were the touch points in their life where the gospel really would matter? He knew people's stories and he could speak with an insight into their lives that is a wonderful model for us. As you look at your community, as you look at your classroom, as you look at your workplace, be fascinated by other people's stories. Slow down. Ask them questions. I tell you guys, one of the greatest places where I learned that skill set and learned what that looked like was actually I had to step into a foreign culture to do that. 
Uh, one of the greatest places where I started to do that was I spent a summer overseas on a mission trip, would go back later to a different country and spend two years as an outsider stepping into another culture where I learned how to listen and slow down and be fascinated by other people. I asked Brittany Richardson to come up and tell you guys a little bit more about what that experience is like uh, and what that entails and really the way that it can not just be a huge need in the nations at large, but also how it can be really incredibly developmental and life-changing for you now and for the rest of your life's trajectory moving forward. So why don't you guys give Brittany a hand, all right? Good morning. Um, so yeah, like Trey said, my name is Brittany. I'm an intern here at Grace, and I had the privilege of going to Greece the summer of my sophomore year in 2011, and I went to East Asia this past summer with the team as an intern, and so uh, I am supposed to be within five minutes, and that's a lot in that short period of time, so if you are intrigued, if you want more questions to be answered, please come and find me and talk to me about summer projects. It's what I love to talk about the most. Um, but I'm going to share one story and a couple lessons that I learned from it from a girl that I met in East Asia whose name is Cherish. She was really great. I was getting coffee with her and a friend and me and a teammate. And we were just talking. I got to know her. We had been um, getting coffee a couple of times. So by this point, I already knew her pretty well. Her background, where she came from, what her major was, what she wanted to do in life, all of these things. And so it landed on religion. Um, I was asking her, and she told me that she was atheist, and her friend was Buddhist. And so they were telling me kind of what that looks like. And I started talking about Christianity and asked if they knew anything about it. And they were like, no, I have no idea exactly what Christianity is. I've heard of it but could you explain it to me? I was like, heck yes. So I, I pulled out this notebook that they gave us over there, and it had it in English and then in her own language. And so I got to walk through the gospel with her. And I have never walked through the gospel with someone who literally knew nothing about it before I started. When I was showing her the diagram of the gap between us and God, the separation, you could see it on her face, just how much she felt that. Like she understood I am separated from God, and that is not good news. And she understood that she could not get to him on her own. And it was crazy and painful to see it on her face. And so when I turn the page, uh, the gap gets closed by the cross. And so it says Jesus on it and like a, a arrow pointing down. Before I said anything, she just exclaimed like, he came for me. God came for me. I was like, yeah, he did. <laughs> it was so exciting. And I was just get, getting to talk to her about, yes, like you cannot do anything. You cannot get there, but Christ came for you. And so much genuine excitement was on this girl's face. And all of a sudden, my eyes were open to this unreached that people keep on talking about. When people say unreached now, I see Cherish's face. I can see her sitting there in front of me, not knowing anything about Jesus, not knowing anything about the gospel. And it was so real for me for the first time because I'm, I'm here. I was here for so many years praying for these people, talking about these people, knowing that people should be sent. But to actually now have a face with the name of someone who needed to hear the gospel for the first time in their life was insane. And I hear about cultures that are hardened to the Lord and that don't want to hear anything about the gospel. And I think of my Greek friends that I met the summer that I went there. And so I want to challenge y'all to go because it wasn't special skills that I had that I knew exactly what to say to Cherish and all these things. Um, they trained me. They equipped me before I went over there. It was just the willingness that I had to sacrifice six weeks of my summer on this trip. And so I was asking y'all and challenging y'all today to go home with open hands to the Lord and ask him 
is this the summer that you want me to go? Because y'all are all in college, and you don't get summers like this after this point. That's kind of weird to think about because you get it right now, and you're like months and months off. But it really is such a prime time to go to sacrifice the summer for the Lord. And so I want to share about three of our locations. We send four. And so three of them go overseas, and it's the end of May to June, and it's Greece, East Asia, and Tradewinds. And the Lord is doing a lot over there, and he could definitely use you if you're in this room. So please consider applying. Um, Those end right before the second summer session, so if you want to do school, you can come back. And the last location is our Kansas City location, Um, and it is for freshmen only. So if you're a freshman in here and um, maybe you're kind of scared about going overseas, but you still want to experience different cultures, this trip is for you. Um, It's only three weeks. It's June 3rd to June 25th. And we're just going to go to Kansas City and work with refugees and help um, sex trafficking victims. So, yeah, I just want to challenge y'all with that. And Trey's going to come back up and pray us out. So, so like Brittany said, here's a, a kind of a slide for our mission trips. So we go to these four different locations. Applications are due uh, this Friday, actually. And so, again, I would love for you guys just to be praying, hey, Lord, what, what is it you have for me? What is it you would have for my summer? And so... Uh, I'll tell you, one of the most life-changing summers for me was when I got to step overseas and, and get to see the nations and get to be in a place where the gospel and the church was not on every established corner of the city. And to see people who literally had never heard the gospel before, had some idea of who God was as something more, much more like Santa Claus than actually Jesus Christ who provides a rescue to us that is unlike any other rescue. So that's one opportunity as you guys look at things globally, as you look at things for the summer. Let me give you guys one other opportunity locally, and I'll conclude with this one other challenge. I want to challenge you guys this week. Whether you're at the grocery store, whether you're at a restaurant, whether you are walking across campus to slow down and to initiate a conversation with two strangers this week, all right? Two strangers. And here's what I want you to do. As you initiate conversations with some strangers, be fascinated by their story. Ask questions. Pull them out. Find out what are their hopes, what are their dreams, what, are their, uh, what might be, as you continue the conversation deeper, what might be some barriers to the gospel that they have and what might be some bridges to the gospel that they might be able to f- hear the truth more easily? Get to know people's stories. Develop in your ability to engage people and to pull them out. I feel like so often we just live life with our phones out and we're using every minute that's dead minute kind of in between things on our phones, uh, continually kind of getting saturated by other people's conversations or whatever's going on. And I'd love for you guys this week on campus, this week at the store, this week waiting in some moment, put the phone away, open your eyes and ask the Lord to give you eyes for strangers that are around you and engage them connect with them, hear their story, pursue them, and be fascinated by them. That's my prayer. That's my challenge for you guys this week. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that you have given us the greatest of all stories, that the God of the universe, the King of Kings would (laughs) stoop down and would take on human nature uh, to come and to identify with those that he would want to rescue. Lord, that apart from his willingness to condescend, apart from his willingness to come to us, we would have been forever separate from you. What an amazing story that you would create us in your image, that though of our sin, though we would fall, that you would come to redeem us and restore us, and that for those that would have a relationship with you, you would call us to new things, that you would call us to things beyond anything we could have ever imagined or thought, to become those that extend rescue to others, to become your ambassadors, your spokespeople. And Father, I pray as we walk out our lives this week, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to step out of the bubble, to initiate with those that may not know you at all, Maybe it's in a park, maybe it's at a restaurant, maybe it's at a library, maybe it's in a class, maybe it's in a workplace. Lord, lift our eyes 
and allow us to see those that you are bringing into our life and allow us to engage them with faith and with boldness, trusting that a story can be told and an opportunity can be brought up and a relationship can be developed, Lord. Allow us to be your walking spokespeople, messengers of your hope and of your grace and of your truth. And Lord, allow us to do it as a community. Allow us to do it as a family and as a church, Lord, that we would be known for our love in this community in a powerful and a profound way, Lord. In your precious holy name we pray, amen. All right, the rest of the morning is y'all is at your tables. And so I hope you guys have a great discussion time.